I, I'm kind of like taking a portfolio approach. Like I'm optimizing for both the short kind of short term, you know, make transformer go as, as fast as possible on text and images. Also kind of uh, placing some long bets, like, okay, maybe we need alternative architectures. Maybe we want to start thinking about these, these, um, other applications that are, that are emerging. Um, so those are some of the, the long bets that, that I'm, I'm thinking about that maybe are a little bit underrated right now, but, uh, you know, those are the things I'm excited about. Yeah. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Generation AI podcast. If you're new to the podcast, I definitely welcome you to check out our first couple episodes. We've had some great conversations with luminary speakers and storytellers. I uh, definitely recommend that you dive into those episodes and just find out a little bit more about what we're all about. Really excited about the conversation that we have teed up today. Uh, this has been a, a long-anticipated conversation. So I'm going to hand things off to our co-host, Ofer, to introduce you to our speaker today and tell you a little bit about the conversation we're about to have. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Ofer. And I wanted to introduce to you uh, Tree Dow today. Tree was a PhD student in computer science at Stanford, co-advised by Christopher Ray and Stefano Erman. He works at the inference of machine learning and systems, and his research interests include sequence models with long-range memory and structured matrices for compact deep learning models. I got to learn about Tree through his work on flash attention, which is also now integrated into PyTorch, and is what allows us to now have long sequence length in transformers without running out of memory on GPUs. His recent work on Flash Attention 2 makes this even better and about twice as fast. Tree currently serves as chief scientist at Together AI, and in September 2024, will be an incoming assistant professor of computer science at Princeton University. Welcome, Tree. I'm so excited to speak with you today. Thank you, Ofer, and thank you, Sean. Uh, thanks, thanks for inviting me to the podcast. I'm, I'm really excited to be here as well. Great. And to get started, um, tell us a little bit about your PhD work at Stanford and how you got to work on uh, flash attention. Yeah, so during my, my PhD, I was um, working at the intersection of both machine learning and systems. Uh, I started out um, actually focusing uh, a lot more on the algorithm design part of, of machine learning. So we spent um, several years looking at more fundamental problems, things like what kind of matrices would have fast multiplication algorithm, um, trying to understand the, uh, for example, the uh, attention mechanism that that is the the, the heart of all of these models right now um, and we spent a couple of years just understanding things from the kind of mathematical or, or algorithmic perspective towards the uh, closest to the end of my my phd i started focusing quite a bit more on how these algorithms um, interface with the systems so for example the hardware accelerators that they're going to run on understanding um, how these hardware accelerators are, are, are laid out their memory hierarchy how we can exploit them. And, and I think flash attention is a good example of how these two things come together, which is um, we take the uh, attention mechanism, which is powering all of these uh, uh, impressive models nowadays. When we want to scale these things up, um, they tend to get quite a bit slower. Um, the reason is um, now each token or each element in the sequence has to interact with way more 
uh, tokens, uh, way more uh, elements in the sequence. So uh, they get much slower. So that's that scale quadratically in, in time and, and memory. And so we, we figured out a, a, a clever way to reorder the algorithm so that it, it maps to, to hardware such as GPUs in an efficient way. Essentially, the, the key idea is you, you want to think about the, the cache and how to use a, the cache efficiently. Um, so as a result, um, this ended up working quite well. You know, the memory now is linear in sequence length. So that allows people to scale to much longer sequences. Um, it's also quite a bit faster. Um, I think two to four X faster than state of the art, um, compared to when it was, it was published last year. We've been really, uh, fortunate to have lots of folks adapting, adopting flash attention to speed up their training, um, and inference of, of, uh, language models and diffusion models and, and, and things like that. So, um, as an example, the folks at OpenAI really liked it. So they, they re-implemented it in, in their language Triton, um, Folks at various companies like Meta and um, Stability and and others have been using it to train large language models um, to speed up their 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 inference. So it's been really exciting to see you know, things coming together, both on the algorithm algorithm side and on the system side, to um, to have impact in the real world where uh, a lot of use cases now are bottlenecked by efficiency and and you know is one of the directions that I'm I'm, I'm looking forward in the future as well. Um, how do we optimize uh, much more the, the the training and inference stack that we have right now? I think there's quite a bit of headroom left by by thinking about both the algorithms and the hardware that they they run on. Great, thank you for that. And you know, um, it's true. When I started using flash attention, which was probably a, a year or two ago, I remember it felt like magic. All of a sudden, you move from a sequence length of say. Um, 1,000, which was common in GPT-2, GPT-3, to 4,000, 16,000. And now we have like Anthropic and OpenAI have 16 or 32,000. And so it's becoming more and more uh, common and useful. Uh, but there were competing approaches before that, things like Longformer and others. Can you tell us about those and how this compares what they did and what what flash attention does uh to see the differences right yeah um that's a great question i yeah yeah so ever since attention became popular in 2017 uh, with the transformer paper uh people have immediately realized that it doesn't scale well with respect to sequence length when you double the sequence length the tam uh doesn't just double it increases by 4x and the memory increases by 4x so ever since Lots of researchers, um, lots of folks in the industry have been working on this problem, which is how do we make attention um, scale better with sequence laying? How do we make attention more uh, more efficient? And and I've worked on that in on that area as well. Um, so there are two main approaches. Um, one is you can approximate the attention matrix by imposing some kind of sparsity. Um, so you only compute some of the entries, and you assume some other entries are zero, or uh, the other approach is to impose some other st structure, like low rank um, structure, um, and that that assumes that this attention metric has a certain structure, um, and you can explore that to make things faster. And I've, I've worked on on, on this as well. Um, but when we talk to practitioners who actually train large scale models, um, they told us, "Well, we don't really use these uh, methods for for two reasons. Um, one is that they usually 
uh, degrade quality. So you, your quality uh, goes down a little bit and they are generally not faster, even though they claim that, okay, we, we do fewer operations, we do fewer floating point operations. Uh, surprisingly, it turned out that that doesn't always correlate with uh, walk clock time. So, uh, of course, Law Farmer has a lot of good ideas. We, we've, we've done follow-up work on, on Law Farmer as well as um, you know, thinking about how we approximate attention matrix. I think one difference with flash attention was that we do not approximate the attention matrix. So we give the same um, result as if you were just running standard attention. What we did was we reordered the algorithm to be much more hardware friendly. So as a result, it is much easier to convince folks to, to, to use it um, because it's like a drop in replacement. It doesn't change anything compared to what they've already done. So if the training transformer, um, it's just replacing, um, the abstraction is you're just replacing one implementation of attention with another implementation. So in fact, that's how PyTorch does it. Uh, when, when the integrated flash attention, they, they have kind of a, uh, an attention function and they can choose the, whichever implementation that, that, that is available. Um, so it's a very seamless experience for folks to, to try it out. And I think that allows it to, um, to make it easier to, to, to integrate and, and, and folks are willing to try it out and can immediately see the benefit of memory reduction, um, of things getting faster. So I think the, the, the focus was how do we get exact attention? We don't change anything, but much faster and much more memory efficient. Uh, of course, some of the ideas are useful when you do approximate attention as well. So uh, I think the message there was just, um, you, not only you, do you want to think about the algorithm, you also want to think about the hardware that, that you're going to run on. Um, so we have um, kind of proof of concept implementations where you use some of the same, uh, the, the same kind of hardware friendly ideas combined with approximation ideas similar to long former, as, as you mentioned, and that allows you to go even longer um, sequences. So um, for just flash attention, you can go to 8K or 16K with reasonable speed. But once you go beyond that in terms of sequence length, things do start slowing down, right? Because you're not approximating your, we're still performing quadratic amount of, of compute. So if you combine some of the sparsity idea, approximation idea, you can go much, much longer um, to 100K sequence length and, and, and so on. Um, and I think um, going forward, we, we will need to start you know, thinking um, more in that direction since now there are applications requiring um, long contacts on the order of 100K to 200K and, and, and things like that. Um, so some of those ideas in terms of approximation will continue to be useful. Um, but uh, the message here is that you, you, you want to combine with some of the kind of systems thinking to make it actually efficient and, and, and run fast on, on real system. Yeah, no, I love that because, uh, you know, I think a lot of the practitioners, like you said, you know, just worked at a software level and didn't even consider what's going on in terms of the implementation and combining that software hardware layer together, as you've shown, you guys have shown in the work on flash attention is very powerful. Where do you see that going? Like, you know, we know that, you know, NVIDIA and others are continuing to develop the hardware in different directions and then the software to make things faster, like flash attention and others will continue to go. Do you see it being more work that's going to be in one side, just the hardware or the software or combined? Where do you see the future of this? Yeah, so I think one future I'm, I'm really excited about is, is software hardware co-design. 
So we, we've seen kind of this feedback cycle of software being designed in one particular way, influencing the way um, software is written or what kind of models will be popular. Um, just as an example, we remember the uh, AlexNet paper um, back in 2012, and it was kind of a watershed moment for deep learning. People realized, hey, deep learning you know, works on, on ImageNet. But if you go back to that paper, half of the paper was about how to make ConvNet run efficiently on GPUs. And so simply because the GPUs were there, they were optimized for gaming, but uh, but folks managed to kind of co-opt that and make ConvNet runs really efficiently. That allows convolution neural nets to be popular for the past uh, uh, 10, 11 years. And similarly for attention, I think one reason, one of the reasons it became very popular was that it got around this um, sequential nature of, of um, recurrent neural nets. And things like LSTM, GRU, that were popular back in um, at the, the point of 2017. So the attention paper, the, the motivation was how do we get around this sequential uh, nature of, of, of RNNs, and that's why that's the title, attention is all you need. You don't need the recurrent part. You just need the attention part. Um, and you can look, uh, look at it as a way to make, to design models that are, uh, that are hardware friendly. And that's, that's one of the reasons that, that these architectures have become popular. So that's, uh, I think Sarah Hooker coined, coined this term hardware lottery. I think that's very apt. Um, just the, the hardware was optimized for something else. And then you design model to take advantage of that hardware, and that allows models to do really well. And nowadays, it's all about scaling, um, so that's super important. But I think going forward, there's going to be even tighter integration, and, and we've seen some of that already, where the hardware is being designed for the model that are uh, that are being trained right now. So as an example, NVIDIA, uh, when they design the, the hardware, the H100, um, they think about, okay, how do we squeeze more performance out? They use um, lower precision uh, numbers like FP8 with 8 bits instead of the usual uh, 16 bits or 32 bits. And they have this kind of software layer called Transformer Engine that does the, the scaling so that um, even with, with much fewer bits, you, you can still train stably. So they have this thing called Transformer Engine um, that's a little bit optimized for the Transformer architecture. So there's this, uh, this other feedback loop where um, the, the model's design now influence kind of the hardware design. And, and we've seen um, going forward, I think on the hardware design side is still going to be focusing on matrix multiply. So matrix multiply is kind of the easiest thing to, um, to speed up. You can design systolic arrays and make, and kind of specialize to matrix multiply. Um, we've seen that with TPUs. We've seen that with, with outer hardware, um, as well. So nowadays, most hardware accelerators will have some kind of systolic arrays to accelerate, um, matrix multiply. Um, so there is this tight, tight coupling between the, the models and, and the hardware. And that might, may not be a, a good thing. It could be like a local, um, minimum. And I, I think one way to, to, to get, get out of the local minimum is having good compilers or software framework. Um, so nowadays, if you use kind of just vanilla PyTorch, um, and you're, 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 uh, you're using some other, uh, neural network architecture that's not a transformer, that is not as optimized. Then you're probably running five x lower than you should, right? Simply because the the, the software framework is, doesn't uh, doesn't uh, optimize as 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 much for your 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 architecture. And that really limits some of the creativity that a lot of folks have. Um, a lot of practitioners have creativity to, to design the architecture 
um, that's well suited for your pro for their problems. Um, lots of researchers uh, have new ideas on how to design architecture, but they they kind of bottleneck by how that translates to to hardware. So I think going forward is um, the role of, of machine learning compilers um, is going to be more and more important, so that you let people write much more creative code or much more creative design, much more creative architectures. Um, but at the same time, the compiler will do a good job to map that to to hardware um, accelerators. So one example is the, the PyTorch 2.0 um, compile feature. So um, you, you write your PyTorch code. PyTorch will then uh, capture the graph of, of operations and then generate code um, to, to run efficiently on uh, GPUs, for example. Uh, another effort is, is Triton from OpenAI. Uh, Phil Tillet has done an amazing job there where you, you, um, you write kind of Python looking code that then get compiled down to really efficient code running on, on, on GPUs. Um, so I think with those efforts, it makes it easier for people to, um, optimize for, uh, optimize their, their, uh, their code for performance. And nowadays with scaling, like performance and efficiency become much, much more important. So I think going forward is going to be this tight coupling of hardware and software. Plus the, de the development of much more mature um, ML compilers that 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 kind of sit in the middle that translate kind of neural network architecture to really efficient hardware. Um, so that's the direction that uh, that uh, I'm particularly excited about. It's going to involve working with a you know a bunch of folks from different areas, you know, compilers, hardware designs, even networking, um, uh, and 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 folks like that. So that so so I'm looking forward to to working uh, to moving in that direction as well. So, Tree, I'm hearing a lot about optimization, and it's great to see that you guys are looking at it both from the lens of the architecture itself, you know, being best fit for the model, but also uh, anything that you can do with the software compilers and anywhere on the software layer. And I think it's also really topical. We're hearing lots of stuff in the news about the scarcity of GPU resources, mm -hmm. the cost of GPU resources going up. I'm actually curious um, that you're at this intersection feeling all the urgency uh, around really optimizing for these workloads. Do you think that's driven largely by uh, you know, these cautions around scarcity or these concerns around cost? Or is it that we've actually hit kind of a saturation point where uh, companies are actually moving more models into production and these GPU costs are no longer just innovation costs, they're, they're, they're non-trivial uh, large costs that they need to, you know, truly optimize for? Yeah, I think the, the, the demand side is what kind of led to this situation, um, especially with ChatGPT uh, being wildly popular. Um, I think there was a surge in demand and on the supply side, of course, software, uh, the, of course, hardware uh, manufacturing takes a, takes a while. Um, so on the, the supply side, uh, people are working hard to, to, to ramp up pr production. But I do think it, it does feel like, um, the AI applications are here and they provide value and, so for a while, we weren't sure. We weren't sure whether it's you know, it a bubble. Are we overproducing GPUs and 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 so on? Um, Nvidia is doing really really well. Um, that seems to indicate that lots of people believe uh, the demand is still is is going to stay. Um, of course, who knows what the the future looks like? But I personally think uh, we've gotten to the point where AI applications are proving that they they can provide a lot of economic value. So we've seen a lot of lots of uh, um, enterprise customers are now deploying models, either fine-tune their model, want to do inference. Um, 
we've seen a lot of enthusiasts wanting to play with this kind of um, of, uh, of technology, and we've seen consumers like uh, paying for applications that that use um, AI. So I think the demand is here. Um, and on the supply side, of course, you know, things are, are, are ramping up. The question is, um, you know, how, where does demand uh, meet supply? Um, and in any case, I think one, um, one idea that, that has been uh, credited to, to the success of these AI models has been scaling. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a bet that, for example, OpenAI kind of pioneered back in 2018, 2019, when they, they were training GPT-2 and they decided that, hey, we're going to scale these things much, much larger. And then it became most apparent with GPT-3 where they scale like 100x larger than the previous model. And so scaling um, has proven to work repeatedly. And then you know, for most people, it was surprising, but now I think people are embracing these ideas. Um, and, and with scaling, um, one one core challenge with scaling is is efficiency. Scaling just means your your models are going to be much bigger. You're you're going to train on much more data. Surprisingly, uh, or not surprisingly, that makes the model much much higher quality and at the same time um, have kind of new capabilities. So they can explain jokes. Uh, they can play chess now without looking at the board. Um, so that's that's all amazing. So with scaling model to be larger and on on more data, now training runs are costing way more. Right, on the order of, of tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars, um, and on the inference side, now you're you're uh, using these models to generate text or, or images or other modalities. Um, large models just cost more to to do the, the generation. So I think you know two factors: the um, the demand seems to be here, the uh, um, and scaling seems to still work. People are still making models larger, train out more data. So I think efficiency is still going to be such an important topic for the next um, at least a couple of years. And, and, and we've seen people kind of converging. Um, people have realized the importance of efficiency. So now um, I think most large organizations that, that train models, they, they really do care about like using the best softwares, using the best um, optimization, using the right kind of you know, distributed strategy, um, and, and, and so on. Um, and maybe the, the next step is like people might, might manufacture their own hardware. So we've seen some of that with, with uh, Meta where they're, they're manufacturing their own um, hardware to do efficient inference now. Um, well, at least they've, they've announced that. So that's maybe the next kind of evolution to meet this, this demand. And I think the need for efficiency is always going to be there. It's particularly exciting because is, is, um, there's a, a large amount of work on, on machine learning on, on efficiency that are now being put in production. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's just in the next year or so, I think the cost of a uh, language model inference is going to go down significantly. Probably it's going to go down 10x. Great. Thank you. No, I, uh, I think the, uh, your point about inference is, is right on. And we see that a lot in industry where more and more models like, you know, Llama 270B and others. And of course, there's, companies who try to optimize their cost that are doing the commercial models. So it's great to hear that there's a lot of um, stuff coming out that will make that more efficient for everybody. I'm also curious, so one more point to ask you is, you know, sequence length, we talked a lot about this here in the context of text, but there are also implications, I'm sure, for audio, video, with other sequential yeah. 
topics. Yeah. Uh, briefly, what are, you, what are your thoughts about that? And where is that going? Yeah, so I think the, the long sequence length has a couple of uh, benefits. One, one on, as you mentioned, on, on text is it's going to give us new capabilities. So we want to understand books and plays and instruction manuals that are much, much longer than before. So we've seen some use cases, I think, in the Claude um, 100K demo where we, they put in like a 100-page document and start querying it uh, and things like that. So that's, that's really cool. You know, these new applications on text are, are, are coming. Um, on the image uh, side, I think it's, it's about closing the reality gap where we've seen that modeling high-resolution images tend to lead to uh, better and more robust insight. And high resolution tend to translate to longer sequences if you're using things like vision transformer. So that, that push is still ongoing. People are now generating higher and higher resolution images too. And one approach there is just to just put a transformer and use much longer sequences and turn out that that worked well. Like you don't need any kind of fancy architecture that, that does, I don't know, hierarchical, um, uh, that impose hierarchy or anything like that. You just essentially use a vanilla transformer with long sequence length, train on lots of data. That seems to work for, for high res images as well. Um, and I think kind of the next frontier is going to be neat, new applications, as you, as you mentioned, audio, video. Um, we've seen things like biological sequences, DNA. Um, these are emerging applications. Uh, they're, maybe they're not as kind of commonplace right now, but I think they're going to be kind of the next wave of applications that's going to benefit immensely from these new architectures, new software and hardware optimization. Um, so I think that's still going to be sequence length is still going to be important. There's always a need for, for longer sequence length. Um, for, for, for text, I think for a while, it wasn't clear if we need super long text. I think natural language certainly has some kind of locality, but now people are kind of stretching the boundary of what applications um, they, they want to they want to use these models for. So, so we've seen folks, instead of kind of summarizing documents, they take all the hyperlinks in the documents and pull in extra context. So instead of a, a let's say a two page document with a bunch of, a bunch of uh, links, um, you can now pull, pull in the information from those linked documents. So I think I just, I just saw a demo of uh, Microsoft Copilot yesterday where they're you know, using Copilot on, on words and they say, like, here's a report. Can you like, write, uh, uh, you know, a, a bullet point about the, this report that is like you know, tens or hundreds of pages long, right? Um, so people are being very creative. Once you allow these models to have longer context length for a while, that was limiting for, for some folks, but now with the improvement in terms of algorithm and then systems, we can train models with much longer context. And people are very creative. They, they will put this, this kind of longer context length to use. And we've seen some of the applications already um, with things like pulling in extra information, things like code generation, where you want to look across the entire code base. Of course, code bases could be longer than 100K. I think there's still a lot of work there on code generation, how to, how to deal with the much, much larger context. Um, so I think there's still lots of applications, um, text, code, video, and biological sequences. I think it's still going to be very exciting. We can't just kind of straightforward um, and uh, be straightforward and, and scale transformer. I think we're at some point we're going to need kind of clever algorithms um, to deal with uh, the sequence lane that's like uh, on the order of of, uh, of a million. So uh, that's probably going to uh, be the focus for the next couple of years. Great. I want to ask you move over to a, a different topic that I'm really curious about. Uh, 
you've had done your PhD at Stanford. I've seen a lot of other people. There are colleagues of yours that work with you. Um, and there's a there's an interesting question today about industry versus academia, right? On the, on the one hand, a lot of the research and the really great research, you know, if you if you thought about you know five years ago or even three years ago, you know, was mostly in academia. But now the big companies like OpenAI or Google or Facebook have a lot more resources, and so a lot of students, I think, that I've talked to, kind of in their heads, are thinking about where should I go? Should I go to academia? Should I go to industry? Uh, what are your thoughts about that? What would you advise students when they think about that question of how to consider that? Right. Yeah, I think that's that's a great great question, and it's very important to think about as you choose your your career path. Um, so I think it depends on what kind of your 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 priorities are. So industry definitely will make more economic sense. Um, I think I've I've read somewhere that kind of the best kind of bang for your buck is a bachelor, or master's degree, and work in industry because. Um, you, know, you then start accumulating experience and uh, get promoted and, and so on and so on. So on the economic side, I think that's probably the best bang for, for your buck. But I think that, you know, that's, uh, academia has never been the, you know, their pitch has never been like, we're, we're going to make you a lot of money. Um, their pitch has always been um, mentoring um, a lot of, kind of intellectual freedom. There's, uh, I think there's definitely more of that in academia. I think we're in, in industry. I think you, you tend to work on shorter horizon because there there is a motivation like hey we want to ship this feature in a couple months um in six months we want to get this out and and and, and so on um on one hand that gives you this short feedback cycle that, that that's just really great for for improving your methods but at the same time i think you're um makes it a little bit uh harder to think about long-term problem or take riskier bets of course there's some industry research lab where where people take risky bets as, as well but in academia, I think you're kind of the, the way you're evaluated is, are you doing interesting stuff? Uh, not necessarily useful. Of course, being useful is, is, is great. But the way you're evaluated is, is your research interesting? So um, that gives you quite a bit more freedom on um, what, kind of, what kind of areas you go into, what kind of stuff you work on. Um, I think right now, model scaling is the, the, the easiest way to get high performance uh, model and as a result, you know, folks in the industry have kind of a natural advantage in terms of, of of resources and 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 so on. And I, you know, I've I've, I've been in academia, I've worked in industry, like I'm I'm now at a, at a startup, so I, I do understand these things. I think going forward, what, what is the uh, what we want to think about is like what is the right model for academia and industry to to collaborate? And I don't have I don't have a good answer, but uh, maybe the, the 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 way is, for example, Meta. You know, they pre-train models. They spend lots of resources pre-training things like Llama and Llama 2, which have been extremely influential. And then academia can, you know, take that and, 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 and for example, try and understand what's going on, uh, interpret the model, evaluate the model, fine-tune models for um, the capabilities that, that they want. So um, I, I would say, coming back to the, 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 the topic, I think right now, um, if you want to work on like just pre-training model and have lots of resources, I think industry is probably a better choice. But if you're interested in maybe exploring your own topic within this larger context um, and having the the uh, kind of luxury to slow down and think uh, think deeply about the problems that you, you care about for just a couple of years and get mentored by by someone who has experience in this, I think academia, academia is still a good choice. 
And I, I do think academia does offer you more flexibility. So lots of folks do their PhD and then go to industry, become research scientists, uh, research engineers, um, or found companies, um, or become professors. Uh, so those are all kind of different career paths that academia will will open up. Um, so it does offer more more uh, flexibility. Um, I think kind of the best combination is probably like your your involved in both. Like personally, that's that's where where I am. That's where I'm excited about. Where I'm still very excited about some of the riskier research that, for example, I collaborate with um, with with folks in academia doing riskier research. Uh, but at the same time, working in at, at a startup environment or industry environment where we get to talk to customers and understand. Uh, they're real concerns, and that really, on one hand, really inform the research. Like what what is relevant to uh, right now, and on the other hand, that that um, like that allows to like, put some of the research ideas in into production and having real impact. So I think that's probably the place where where I, I like the most, and, and and right now that's 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 where I'm at. So if you're you know thinking of doing PhD or going industry, maybe. You know, consider doing PhD with industry internships so that you understand uh, what it's like to be in academia and what it's like to be in industry and then kind of make the choice um, based on what you value. So, Tree, you've mentioned a little bit about your commercial endeavors, um, and I know we're rounding up on the top of our time here. Can you tell us a little bit about Together AI and uh, what you've newly embarked on? Absolutely. Yeah, so this is uh, is a is a young startup. Um uh, we're, we're focusing on open source, um, AI. So we are, uh, working on allowing customers to either train models from scratch or fine tune existing open models or doing inference on existing open models. Um, so kind of providing the in infrastructure to do that. So, uh, we've seen lots of customers who just want to do like, Hey, we have Llama 70B. We just want to like, Query, uh, do inference on, on Llama 70B, or they fine tune a Llama model or something and they want to do inference on their fine tune model. And, um, we kind of provide the, the infrastructure to do that. We provide the op optimized software stack to do that as efficiently as, as possible. I, I think you know, philosophically, this does quite align with, with what I care about, which is focusing on open source models. So that was, uh, the company was started, I think a year ago. And, and back then, um, I think. The, the bet was uh, open source AI is going to be a viable ecosystem. And I think a year ago, that was not obvious. Um, a year ago, there was no Llama. I think the largest open source model was GPT-NeoX at 20B. So open source AI didn't look that good. And and we, we, we've been believing in open source AI. You know, I've, I've, I've worked on releasing my code in open source, into integrating it with kind of things like PyTorch so that it makes it easier for, for people to use. So for, philosophically, I think we're, we're invested in making open source um, AI a viable ecosystem. Um, of course, you know, closed source models from OpenAI and, and, and Google and Anthropic is still gonna be you know, a very compelling offer, um, but we wanna focus on, on open source as a kind of counterbalance. Um, and, and we've seen that shifting uh, a little bit uh, kind of on the customer side, we've seen customers shifting to open source quite a bit more, especially after um, Llama and Llama, uh, Llama 2 release, as you mentioned over with Llama 2, 270B now is a very capable model, and if you uh, you, know, uh, you have your own data that you want to fine tune on, um, it can be it can be a very strong model fine tuned to your data, and and you have control over it. So so we've seen a lot of demand there where people want to fine tune open source models for their data, and then doing inference on that. Um, and 
what we what we're offering is uh, kind of the 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 hardware and the software to do that. So this you know this is a topic that I really care about you know efficient training and and infants is, is uh, especially infants nowadays. I'm spending a bunch of time on on making infants as, as fast as possible. Um, so uh, I think they're you know, philosophically to, like uh, aligns well with what what I care about. Um, the in terms of culture, it's a bunch of folks that I've I've known for for a while, and the the focus still on it's like very much research driven, um, which which is what I like. Um, so putting some of the research ideas into into production, doing new research, um, contributing to open source, like we release um, models like uh, data open data sets like Red Pajama and releasing um, models in the open, kind of to uh, invested to grow the open source AI pie. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's something I'm, I'm focusing on at, at the moment, which is this, it's, you know, this right in the middle of, of, of research and, and, and production. Great. We talked a lot about, you know, LLMs and audio and video and architectures and combining hardware and, and software. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation. What do you see in the future? Are there going to be, new architecture that we're not thinking about that will kind of put this all to kind of in a, in a, in a, in a back of mirror, or is it going to be looking like this, just improving uh, over time? I, I guess another way to, to ask this question is what are you excited about? What do you seek in your view that will happen that we're, we're not aware of right now? Yeah, I think there are a couple of areas that I'm excited about that maybe are in opinion uh, underrated. Um, so, so you, mentioned architecture, I think right now, definitely the transformer architecture is dominant. Like all of the uh, most capable models are transformers. I think there is space for alternative architectures. And that's something I've been uh, working on for, for a while. Like I, you know, I spent a bunch of time trying to make transformer as fast as possible, but I also spent uh, kind of a bunch of time looking at other uh, alternatives. Um, so things like, um, Recurrent neural nets, RNNs, or state-based models, or convolutional models. Um, we've seen, I think, promising evidence that these models can scale well as well. Um, I think the the bottleneck there is, do we have good um, software and hardware support so that these models can scale efficiently? Um, so, for example, I worked on state-space state models, which kind of look like um, both convolutional neural nets and uh, recurrent neural nets at, at the same time. And we've seen that you, if you scale these things up, um, they can, they can be quite competitive. They're not kind of beating transformer yet, but they can be quite competitive with transformer. They have the, the advantage of being, I think, uh, quite a bit more efficient on, uh, when you do inference. So, um, when you do inference, you don't have to, uh, for, 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 uh, transformer, you need to keep around, uh, the, this KV cache, which is the, the, uh, the attention value from all the previous tokens because the, the, the new tokens are going to attend to all the previous tokens. But for other architectures like recurrent neural nets, you compress the entire history into some fixed state vector and you only keep that fixed state vector um, around. So you don't, as a result, you don't spend as much GPU memory on storing this KV cache and you can use much larger batch sizes and have much higher throughput. Um, I think the, the challenge right now is can we have a high performing uh, RNNs or, or state space model that can compete with transformers, especially at, at large scale. Um, 
And can we have software and hardware that's efficient for, for these things? I personally, I'm, I might be in the minority. Personally, I'm really excited about this. Um, uh, I've been working on this for a while. I think there is space for alternative architecture. We've seen evidence-based models like RWKV, which is a recurrent um, kind of model that's getting a lot of, of popularity as well. They're, they're not quite beating Transformer, but um, you know, lots of folks are betting on RWKV or playing with RWKV. So on the architecture side, I think there is space for alternative architecture, especially when you start thinking about new hardware, like you want to deploy models on phones with limited uh, memory. So these models tend to be more uh, compelling. So that's on the, the architecture side. I think the, the other direction that's a little bit underrated, I think there are new applications coming in other domains. Um, right now, the focus is very much on text and maybe images. And you know, people are still going to scale models on you know, language models and, and image model and, um, and multimodal models for, for a while. I think there's probably a, a two orders of magnitude more we can, we can scale. Like models can get 10x uh, larger and we can train on 10x more data. So there's probably two, two more orders of, of magnitude that, that we can scale. You know, these applications on text and images are very compelling. I think, um, you know, as a, as a researcher, I want to also like kind of look into the future. Let's say in three years or so, or so what, um, application domains are going to be, are going to be compelling. And I think new, new domains like video, um, is, is very interesting. Biological sequences, um, that could, have a lot of economic impact as well. We've seen some um, some companies using these models to accelerate drug designs and, and 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 things like that. So I think these new application areas that people are not quite focusing right now, uh, people are focusing on text and images for good reason. Other domains might be on in the in the horizon. So uh, you know, if I'm I'm kind of like taking a portfolio approach, like I'm optimizing for both the short kind of short term, you know, make transformer go as as fast as possible on text and images. Also, kind of uh, placing some long bets, like okay, maybe we need alternative architectures. Maybe we want to start thinking about these these um, other applications that are that are emerging. Um, so those are some of the the long bets that that I'm, I'm thinking about that maybe are a little bit underrated right now. But uh, you know, those are the things I'm excited. About. Yeah. Yeah, that is actually very exciting areas, evolving architectures, moving beyond text. And I'm personally excited to be you know, involved in this podcast where we're going to be tracking some of these evolutions. So um, I think that's all the time that we have today. Uh, as always, I want to thank my co-host Ofer for uh, his thoughtful approach to the questions and conversations. And to our guest today, Tree, who um, you know really enjoyed your conversation, uh, giving us the, both the, the lens of your, your commercial engagements as well as uh, being deeply seated in, in academia. So um, for our listeners, if, you've, uh, if you're still with us at the end of this conversation, you've likely realized that this is a great place for you um, to really dive deep and understanding what's happening in the world and the ecosystem around generative AI. Um, and so please stick with us. We've got a great bench of uh, guests coming up uh, throughout the end of this year. And so I'm really excited to introduce you and introduce some of these new conversations. So thank you so much, Tree, and our guests today. And we will see you on the next episode of Generation AI. Thank you. Thank you.